We're going to have two readings this morning. The first is from Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. And turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm beginning to read at verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of God-fearing Jews would have contributed to the synagogue up. Well done, you. Uh, Once upon a time, I could do a length now. Uh, But they might say to you, I am brilliant at swimming butterfly. At which point you might say, show me. And the evidence of their butterfly is seen in the ridiculous action um, that accompanies it. And uh, for some people, great speed. Paul said, I see your faith, your love, your hope not just things that are spoken about. It's not just sort of Christian jargon. I see them. So here, and these, uh, uh, verse three, uh, because faith produces work, good works. And you see elsewhere in the letter, they've stopped living as they did before. Chapter four, verse one, they've stopped living like pagans. They're busy serving Jesus. Their faith has changed them. Love, love produces labor. It prompts it, stimulates it. It's a very strong word that gets used for labor here. It's a physical word. It's the sort of exhaustion after a day on a building site, mixing cement, lugging bricks up and down ladders. I can think of one summer when I was a student, I spent on a building site mixing cement and lugging bricks up and down and building walls that were a little bit wobbly and had to get corrected by uh, someone better than me. But uh, I tell you what, you sleep well at the end of that. That sort of physical labor. You're walloped. And that's what he's talking about. It's labor produced by love. So a spiritual person is not a Zen-like figure who sits legs crossed and meditates hours. A spiritual person is, well, works hard for the sake of other people. They labor. 
Christians or Christian love works hard for other people. Now, can I just say briefly, I, I see that in many here. Perhaps I hear about it in more here than lots of people do. Many will have a hectic day and late hours in the office or chasing children uh, around the park. And rather than retreat into the gin and tonic and retreat into episode 17 of the next box set, whatever it may be, there's a concern to visit someone who's struggling, to prepare a decent Bible study, to write to a mission partner, to get along to something, to offer some practical advice. There's a concern to get up earlier, to look after some people's children in crash, which sometimes is noisy, as you'd have noticed. It's very encouraging. It's hard work. It's labor, prompted by love. It's God at work. You know, and in the next couple of months, uh, as um, we plant again, uh, or what are we doing? Refurbishing, regurgitating, reinvigorating uh, a church in uh, Haringey. Well, it'll be hard work. It'll be hard work for those who go. Lots of things will need to get done in a new church plant. It'll be hard work for those who stay. Got to invest in new friendships, got to fill the gaps. But I hope and I pray we'll see it because God is at work. And his work will encourage us to love one another and labor hard. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. Hope in Jesus Christ inspires people to keep going, to endure. And probably more than any other letter, you'd have to say in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians is a letter of hope. Um, perhaps there's something slightly deficient in the Thessalonians' hope, we'll get to that. But the letter itself is filled with hope, constant references to the coming of Jesus Christ. His return described as his coming. Every chapter. So here in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, believers are waiting for God's Son from heaven, who's raised from the dead, Jesus, who's rescued us uh, from the coming wrath. Just flick, around, flick along. Uh, chapter 2, verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Chapter 3, verse 13. May God strengthen your heart so you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our Lord God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. Chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord Jesus himself will come down. Chapter 5, verse 23. Brothers and, no, uh, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May you, your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The drumbeat throughout this letter is he's coming. Jesus is coming. He is coming. So keep going. As you are. More and more because he's coming back. And that helps you endure that hope when you know that he's coming. A little hero I read about recently, uh, no, not read about, was told about, uh, some will know, uh, was Diprasad Pun. 
He's the Gurkha soldier uh, awarded the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross for his actions in uh, the war in Afghanistan a few years ago. And it's a quirky story, but <laughs> extraordinary one, really. This, uh, he was um, uh, guarding a, a post where his uh, fellow soldiers... Uh, well, his unit uh, compound, and he was sort of uh, on an outlying uh, post. And uh, all of a sudden, while he's on duty, guard duty, he heard uh, some sort of clicking noises and realized he was about to be attacked by Taliban fighters. So he did a couple of things. He, one, grabbed his radio and phoned back to his commander and said, uh, are under attack. Can you reinforce me? Because it's just me, uh, and um, we need, I need some help. Did that, threw that down, picked up his own gun, and then a big sort of two-man machine gun rifle with all its ammo, and fought. And it was him versus 20 Taliban uh, uh, militia soldiers attacking his post. And uh, in the citation, you read that he spent 400 rounds of ammunition. He threw 17 grenades, and he set off a mine. He kept going, thinking... Help will get here soon. The commander will come. It's not that far from the base to where this is. But he ran out of all ammunition. Uh, so at the end, uh, he just picked up this massive rifle, uh, machine gun and just threw it at one bloke and uh, knocked him unconscious. All he had left was the tripod that he had been on, picked that up, charged, and smacked another bloke around the head, knocked him unconscious. He had nothing left. Basically, he was, he was down to fighting with his socks, pretty much, by the end, because he'd used up absolutely everything. He just kept going. And his actions were cited as the bravest seen in his battalion during two hard tours of Afghanistan. He kept going because help would come. I'll keep going. I won't just roll over. Help will come. And when he'd run out of absolutely everything, help did come. Although he'd taken out 20 others by the time it did. Now look, that's, you know, that's very impressive. In the far more mundane and yet more significant way, the Christian believer says, I can keep going. Because Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming to right every wrong in this world. He's coming to reward those who keep going in this world. He's coming. So I'll keep going. Endurance doesn't come from some inner resolve for us, nor personal strength or competence, but hope. Hope is the, it's the, the slow drip of caffeine into the heart of a believer so just when he thinks, oh, I'm, no, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. I'm ready to go again. One more cup, brilliant. I'll keep going. I've got another half hour left in me yet. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. It's what hope does. The certainty that Jesus is coming again. So you get this lovely trio, uh, faith, hope, and love. A work of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope. And that's the reason Paul can say, verse 4, we know that you're loved by God and God has chosen you. It is that, that trio feeds into or flows into verse 4. We know that you're real brothers and sisters, you're loved by God, you're chosen by him because your faith is active. I can see it. Okay? They're a great church. That's the first then. And then you get the second, which flows out of verse four. 
So it flows in their faith, was very active. Out from that, from verse four, flows the fact that they welcomed the gospel. So you see verse four, we know brothers and sisters loved by God, he's chosen you. How do you know that? Because, verse five, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They're the real deal. How does he know that? Verse five, the gospel comes not just simply with words, but Holy Spirit and the deep conviction or deep assurance. Not three different things. Paul is three, just three overlapping ways of describing the same experience. But he, Paul, Paul is saying, it's not that my words are, so, are very clever. It's not that I'm a salesman with great patter and I came to you with the gospel, but I could have done you for double glazing or carpets just as well because my words are so terrific. No, God is at work. The gospel came to them in a transforming way, and that's obvious because they became, verse 7, imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Because, of course, becoming a Christian, it's not, um, it's not mere mental acquiescence to certain facts. Becoming a Christian is transformative of your life. So here, verse six, when the gospel came to these people in Thessalonica, they imitated, verse six, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and in what way in particular, they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy. Remember in Acts 16 that we had read, imagine you've been listening to Paul preach and uh, you're wondering about, you know, I, I think that's true. I think maybe I need to follow this Jesus, maybe I do. And then you see Jason pulled from his house and beaten up in the street. And you hear that Paul and Silas, they've been accused of treason against Caesar and they're going to be arrested and put to death because that's what you get for treason. And you observe all of this and you think, yeah, I want to become a Christian. I want to become like Paul and imitate his faith. Why? In the midst of severe suffering and not even begrudging, not even a here we go, but with deep joy. That is God at work. And of course, we find it a bit odd, perhaps, that in those circumstances, in our world, we, think, we look at these circumstances and think, well, to become a Christian then, well, that's, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. You know, I, when, when children are young, they say, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a, a doctor, I want to be an actor. And you think, well, yeah, those are noble ambitions, I, I get. The Thessalonians say, we want to be like him uh, on the run for his life. We want to imitate him. And I guess, I don't know this for certain, but for us in our 
upsetting. Comfort and ease and safety and affluence and political freedom and social freedom and, and, and wealth they can be quite deadly for the Christian believer because you just want to hold on to those things whereas discomfort, danger, anxieties, money worries, threat can cause you to grasp hold of him more firmly and say when life is uncertain, I have security. And in knowing that Jesus is coming back and will right all wrongs and will reward those who love him, I have enormous joy. And so I wonder if that's why in the midst of great persecution they have joy. I mean, historically, it's not a convincing argument, but historically you'd have to say some of the greatest growth in the history of the church is where there's poverty and threat. That's been the case in, in China, in Korea, in Nepal, currently Iran, reputedly the fastest growing church in the world in desperate circumstances for Christians. For those who were here at the prayer meeting at the beginning of the month, uh, we heard from Tim Riddington about the work of open doors in supporting the persecuted church. Reported back on um, the pastor from Pakistan whose church had survived uh, an attack from uh, numerous Islamist gunmen. Golly, what can we do to help? Pray for us. Yeah, but what can we do? Pray for us. The most useful thing you can do in the West is pray for us. All right. And Tim asked him, sorry, I don't want to be rude. Is there laughter in your household? when there's such threat. Can I ask you that? Oh yes. There's lots of laughter. But more than that, a deep joy. Because of the hope, the security we have in Jesus Christ. Here's the Thessalonian church. They are undoubtedly the real deal, and Paul gives thanks for them because they welcome the gospel, not merely intellectually, but in a way which transformed their lives. They'll say, yeah, we can joyfully accept persecution. Okay, their faith was active, they welcomed the gospel. Third, lastly, briefly, they were noisy examples, verses seven and eight. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known <coughs> everywhere. Verse 7, they're a model, an example. They're a model for others to copy. We went to Ikea on Bank Holiday Monday along with 100,000 others. That was an odd decision. And um, uh, reading some of the blurb as you're sort of queuing up to pay for several hours uh, was um, the fact that every month they sell, uh, let me get this right, they sell a quarter of a million Billy bookcases. You know, the sort of bulk standard IKEA. It's their best-selling item. A quarter of a million uh, every month. Extraordinary. I'm sure I've thrown away several over the years. But, um, uh, and, but you know how these things work in IKEA. You go to the showroom and there's the, there's the model. Okay, I, I want one like that. Uh, and then you pick up this thing and you take it home and uh, you've got to make it. But you have the model. 
And you have the picture. Uh, and you say, I, I know what I'm aiming for. Well, the Thessalonians, they're a model. They're a model to others in Greece, Macedonia and Achaia, which is extraordinary because they've only been Christians a few weeks. Why their model? Well, verse 8. Uh, the Lord's message rang out from you. Rang out. It's a strange verb. This verb rang out is the only place in the Bible it gets used. It's a noisy word. Rang out or boomed out. Uh, in secular Greek, it's used to trumpets at the time. Uh, I don't know, but my poor old neighbors at home, my son, he plays the trumpet, he plays the drums, he plays the electric guitar. That is a noisy combination that booms out through the walls, I, I guess. Uh, it's that sort of thing. Just occasionally here in the evening uh, when the room is full and they get the sound levels a little bit wrong at the back, the music begins and it just booms in your face. And you think, oh, I can't sing, it's too loud. Occasionally it just goes a little bit wrong. Uh, boom! It's what he's saying. This message booms out from them. They're speaking the gospel and is making a loud noise in the hills and valleys and towns and villages of Greece. And alongside this boom evangelism, there's rumors or rumor evangelism. Can we call it that? Verse 8, second half, your faith in God has become known everywhere. We don't need to say anything about it. We don't need to tell anyone about your faith because, verse 9, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They, who is they? It's the people of Macedonia and Achaia, the people of Greece. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. So I imagine the scenario is a bit like this, a little down the coast in Athens, in Corinth. A merchant turns up and says to his mucker, What's the news in Thessalonica? Well, it's a bit odd actually. I had some knock off, knocked off wine that I'd stolen from some Roman soldiers' wagons and I was going to sell it to my normal mucker in Thessalonica. Sweet deal, easy money. And he said he didn't want it. He wasn't going to deal in uh, stolen goods anymore because he was following Jesus. I mean... Didn't know what to think, whether to think, idiot, that's easy money you're turning down, or, well, part of me thought, what sort of God makes you change your life? I'm going to ask him next time I'm back there. What is it about your God that makes you live differently? That's what's going on, so it seems, here in uh, Thessalonica. So they're noisy models. Their faith is both booming out the message but also their lives are transformed and people are talking about it. The description you get in verses 9 and 10, it's a lovely mini description of conversion, becoming a Christian. They themselves report, or what do they report? They tell how you, well, three verbs, turned to God from idols. Secondly, to serve the living and true God. Thirdly, to wait. You turned, and now you serve, and now you wait. They turned to God from idols. Rather than thinking, uh, my life will go well if I follow um, Zeus or Athena or any of the other gods of Mount Olympus, which is just down the road. I mean, Greek gods are pretty big in Greece in the first century still. Mount Olympus down the road. Uh, rather than thinking my life will go well if I follow Zeus or Athena or, or my life will go well in the 21st century if I 
pursue my career to the detriment of other things and pursue money above all else. Those things will keep me safe. Those things will protect me. Those things will make my life go well. They've changed. And they've turned to God to serve him. Of course, it's a bit hard, isn't it, to make that change? Because the idols, well, they're, they're tangible and visible. And Jesus is well, he's invisible to us, somewhat intangible at times. But Paul would say the idols are false and dead. But Jesus is true and alive. You need to hold those things together. He may be invisible, but he's true. He's alive. And so you serve him. And you wait for him. There's a balance to those two, isn't there? Serve, you're sort of actively doing things, but you wait. You'll never achieve everything this side of heaven. There's a balance to those two things. You know he's coming back. So three marks then of a healthy church. Three reasons that Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonians. Their faith was active. They welcomed the gospel. They were noisy models. Let me try and conclude in two comments briefly. The first is, look, here are three marks of a genuinely healthy church. And presumably, therefore, you and I, as together, we should aspire to be like them. An active faith. Welcoming the gospel, including persecution with joy, if it comes. A noisy faith, booming out in words, rumors of transformed lives. We should seek to emulate them. But let me secondly say, perhaps we need to more often give thanks like this. Again, at the start of the month at the prayer meeting, uh, in our groups that we were praying, we all took time to give thanks for at least one person at church who has encouraged us. Give thanks for what we've seen of God at work in their lives and how that's been a, a blessing and encouragement to us. That's a very healthy thing to do. Can I encourage you to do that? I mean, probably start over lunch. See, Paul, Paul does two things here. He thanks God and lets the people know what he's thanking God for about them. Well, even over lunch, we could say thank you to someone who's been an encouragement to us. And then just remember afterwards to thank God for them as well. Because it is enormously encouraging. Paul says, I, I, I see you. I hear of you. And now I live. Now I have joy. So for us to give thanks for similar reasons will be a good thing. Here is a lovely church. It's a lovely letter, the whole letter of Thessalonians, really, 1 Thessalonians, because the church is going really well. So we want to be a church like this and give thanks like this. Let me lead us as we pray. Our great God and Father, we want to thank you this morning for signs of life, for signs of you being at work. Thank you even amongst us. While we have much more to do, 
and we are a long way from perfect. Thank you for uh, the many here who encourage us by their active faith, by how they embrace the gospel, even at cost, by being noisy models, booming out the faith, with lives transformed so people notice. Father, we want more and more, as Paul will say to the Thessalonian church in chapter four, I love how you're living now, more and more, more and more, as we look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would his coming stimulate our hope so that we labor in love and good works? We pray it. And would we, even today, be those who give thanks for the encouragements around us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.